That's enough side conversations. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 5. While you're turning there, let me remind you, uh, we're walking all the way through the book of Matthew, and we took a little break after we got through the first four chapters. It's taking me a little bit to get there. Matthew chapter 5. Here it is. So let me just kind of remind you what we did in the first four chapters so that we're ready to get into chapter 5 with the context in mind. In the first four chapters, we asked one big question, and that is, who is Jesus? Who is the king? So he's the one that was promised in the Old Testament. He's the one that's going to fulfill the promise to bless all the nations. He's going to be the king who's a forever king, who has a forever throne. And he's going to wipe away the curse. He's going to take sin away, and he's going to bring salvation to all the world. In chapter 5, starting in chapter 5, we're going to ask a slightly different question. Not who is the king, but who is in his kingdom? Who can be in the kingdom of this king? And we're going to start in Matthew chapter 5. We'll go Matthew 5 all the way through chapter 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. It's one relatively long sermon. It's the longest we have recorded of Jesus, the longest sermon we have. And we're going to see him say, this is who gets into my kingdom. This is the person who gets into my kingdom. And so we want to know. We want to ask. We want to figure out, what do I need to do? How can I be there? And Jesus answered it for us, which that means listen up, right? Listen up. This is how you can be in the kingdom. We're not going to go all the way through the whole sermon tonight. So you don't have to worry. We're not going to go all the way through three chapters, but we're going to look at the introduction, just the Beatitudes. In the Beatitudes, we're going to get eight statements, eight statements that say this is what a person who gets into the kingdom looks like. If you want to ask yourself, am I the type of person who will be in the kingdom of heaven, look at these Beatitudes and say, does this describe me? These eight statements will give us a picture of the type of person who will be in the kingdom. So let's read them. I'll start in chapter 5, verse 1. He says, In seeing the multitudes, he, and we're talking about Jesus, Jesus went up into a mountain, and when he was set, uh, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Let's pray. Dear Lord, there is no question that we could ask that's more important How can we be sure that we're in the kingdom? 
And so in these eight statements, we're asking you to open our eyes so that we can be confident that we can be in your kingdom. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Teach us to respond in obedience to your wise sayings. In your name I pray, amen. Before I start, let me just tell you, I honestly feel like I'm doing you an injustice to try to cover all of these in one night. Uh, I spent a lot of time listening through sermons. Some of those try to cover the whole Beatitudes, but some of the best ones walked each message, sermon by sermon, through the Beatitudes, and I thought, man, there is, a, there is just so much wealth to be uncovered, and, and we won't scratch it tonight. Just barely scratch it. What I've done for you, if, you, if this sparks a hunger, if you start thinking, I want to know more about what it means to be poor in spirit, or more about what does it mean to be meek, or any of these, on our website, under the resources for further study, I have a link of a series that one pastor, John Piper, did where he walks through each one of these. I found them immensely beneficial. And so if you get a hunger, you want to know more about each beatitude, and you're willing to listen through eight sermons, then uh, it'll, be a, it'll be a great resource for you. It's on our website, so you can go there as soon as you get home. All right, so let's dig into them. Let's look at the Beatitudes. Before we look at individual Beatitudes, let's make some big observations. What are the big observations about the Beatitudes? And the first thing I want to observe is the word Beatitude. Why do we call them the Beatitudes? And this is just, I think, because we love to sound smart. Beatitude comes from a Latin word, beatus, which means blessing. And so because we like to sound smart and say Latin words, we call them the Beatitudes. It just means that these are the blessings, right? Eight blessings that Christ lists out for us. What are blessings? That's our second observation. If these are eight blessings, then we have to ask what? does the word blessing mean? Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. What does blessed mean? Blessed, this is something where a lot of people spend a lot of time because they think there's something deep here. And really, it's pretty simple. Blessed just means that this is a good thing. He's going to describe to you, this is a good thing. If you're poor in spirit, that's a good thing. Blessed simply means, if you look it up in, a, in a, a Greek dictionary, this word, it'll say that this is a, um, a good circumstance or a fortunate circumstance. It just means this is a good thing. If I can say about you that you're poor in spirit, then that's a good thing. That's all it means. It's a good thing. Um, another thing that is kind of obvious, but I think it deserves saying, is that the Beatitudes are poetry. Common form of Hebrew poetry that you see parallelism and repeated words. Each time it says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is something. Blessed are thee, for theirs is. And you have this repeated parallelism, and it goes over and over and over. It's a common form of Hebrew poetry. And we know this because it's all through the Psalms. I'll read just some of them. In the Psalms, you would find Psalm 32.1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Psalm 33, 12, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. Blessed, this is Psalm 44, blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. 
Psalm 41.1, blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of the trouble, the Lord delivers them. My point is, Jesus is using a very common form of poetry to say, here's some good things. Let me tell you some good things. But Jesus does something that's a little different than all of those I listed to you. And that's that Jesus uses something called irony. In those blessings that I just read to you, you would expect those to be blessings, right? Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord because the Lord will um, deliver him, right? We expect that to be a blessing. What Jesus does is he says things that you wouldn't expect to be a good thing and says they are good things. It's when you put two incompatible ideas together that you're coming into a poetic thing called irony. My dad used to tell me an ironic poem as a kid. I'll share it with you just as an example. This was all for me to try to wrap my head around two conflicting ideas and put them together. The poem was, One bright day in the middle of the night, two dead men stood up to fight. Three blind men to see fair play, and forty mutes to yell hooray. (laughs) Back to back, they faced each other, drew their swords, and shot each other. And then he would say, all right, Nathaniel, why doesn't that make sense? And we would go through, you can't have a bright day in the middle of the night. Right? Mutes can't yell hooray. And I would go through and say, these are incompatible ideas. It's a poem of things that don't go together. And that's what Jesus is doing for us. He's saying, it's a good thing when you're spiritually poor. What? It's a good thing when you're sad and mourning. The hardest one, it's a good thing when other people persecute you. That's a good thing. That's two, those don't go together. That's, he, these are ironic poems. Let me try to illustrate why this is so ironic for you. Actually, a pastor named Joshua Harris said if he were to write Beatitudes for the American culture, things that did go together that America would expect, here's his eight. This is the American Beatitudes. He says, blessed are the self-confident because they rule the world. He said, blessed are the positive thinkers because they don't need anybody's comfort. Blessed are the cocky or the assertive because they always get what they want. Blessed are those who hunger for fame because they get their own reality TV shows. Blessed are the vengeful because they get respect. Blessed are the impure pleasure seekers because they get a good time. Blessed are those who beat their opponents because the victors write the history books. And his eighth one was, blessed are the popular because everybody loves them. You might disagree with some of those, but in general, wouldn't you say that that's how most Americans would describe the good life? But Jesus, at each step, he turns it all the way on its head. Not blessed are the popular, blessed are those who suffer. Not blessed are the self-confident, blessed are those who are spiritually poor. Not blessed are the happy, blessed are the ones who are sad and in mourning. Jesus is saying in order to understand the kingdom, you have to understand this is not what makes sense according to your world. The kingdom is very, very much different than what you see on a day-to-day basis and think on a day-to-day basis. God's world is is different than our world. And if we're going to be members of God's kingdom, we're going to look different 
than people of this kingdom. Let me give you one last big observation before we get into them. And that is the Beatitudes are all about the kingdom of heaven. And here's how you know it. If you look at the first Beatitude and the last Beatitude, you realize there's something similar. The first one says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the eighth one says, Blessed are those who suffer or who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And everything else in between then comes in between these two sentences, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Another Latin word, is this is called an inclusio, which is another fancy word. I don't know why we have to learn these words sometimes. But it just means it bookmarks, right? It's, it's like bookends. If you go to a library, right, and you would come up to your sports section, you would have one bookend, and then you would have a section on all about books about football, and then another bookend, right? And then you would start a new one. And all the books in between here are all about tennis or or whatever, the bookends say everything in between here is about the same thing. And inclusio is a way in literature to say everything in between here is all about the same thing. And it's all about the kingdom of God. So here's what he's saying to us. He's saying that the people who get into the kingdom of heaven are people who are poor in spirit. They're mourners, they're meek, they hunger and thirst after righteousness. They're merciful, they're pure in heart, they're peacemakers. And they're those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And then he says, in the rewards of the kingdom of heaven, that those people are comforted, they inherit the earth, they're filled with righteousness, they're shown mercy, they see God, they're called sons of God. All of these things are things that explain to us what it means to be part of the kingdom. With those big ideas in place, let's start digging into the individual Beatitudes. We're going to try to understand what would it look like, what would I look like if I was part of the kingdom of heaven? And remember that this is an ironic poem. So what we're going to find is that our answer almost seems contradictory. I'm going to tell you tonight that in order for you to be part of the kingdom of heaven, two things that almost seem contradictory need to be true of you. First, you have to realize that you have no righteousness of your own. You have to say, I don't deserve to be part of the kingdom. That's the first four Beatitudes. They're going to tell us, you have to realize you don't deserve to be there. The second four Beatitudes are going to say, you look like a righteous person. You're merciful. You're pure in heart. You're a peacemaker. Contradictory ideas. I don't have any righteousness, and I look like a righteous person. I'll go ahead and spoil it. I was going to wait. There's a verse in the middle, right there in the middle, number four, and it's going to explain why these contradictory ideas work, and that's that Christ will fill us with his righteousness. I just spoiled it, but it's fun. So let's, let's go see how he gets us there. Let's dive into the first, uh, the first four Beatitudes. I'll read them again. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the kingdom of earth. I'm sorry, they shall inherit the earth. 
Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. So let me ask you, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Because it's the poor in spirit who enter the kingdom of heaven, right? The poor in spirit are the people who get into heaven. So it's really important for us to say, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? And again, let me remind you that if you really want to dive into this, the sermons on the website are worth your time. But I'm going to give you a snapshot of what I learned in one of those sermons, and I'm going to read to you how John Piper described it. He defended it, he explained it, but I'm just going to say his summary of how he describes someone who is poor in spirit. He gives you five points. He says, it's a sense of powerlessness in ourself. Second, he said, it's a sense of spiritual bankruptcy and helplessness before God. It's a sense of moral uncleanness before God. It's a sense of personal unworthiness before God. And his fifth one says, it's a sense that if there is to be any life or joy or usefulness, it will have to be all of God and all of grace. And he says this, the reason I say sense of powerlessness and sense of bankruptcy and sense of uncleanness and sense of unworthiness is that objectively speaking, everybody's poor in spirit. Every single person in this room is poor of spirit. He says, everybody, whether you sense it or not, is powerless without God and is bankrupt and helpless and unclean and unworthy before God But not everybody is blessed. Piper's explaining that poorness in spirit has everything to do with realizing the truth about who we are. Poorness in spirit means I realize there is nothing good on my own. But if you realize that, then yours is the kingdom of heaven. Watch the next one, and it flows right out of this. Blessed are those who mourn. I don't think he's talking about every time you watch a sad movie, you get weepy. It's not blessed are you when you watch Bambi and Bambi's mom dies. It's not what he's talking about. He's saying, blessed are you who mourn because you are poor in spirit, because you realize that your sin is so deep and so grievous that it literally breaks your heart. When you think about who am I before Christ, before God, you think, that's too much to bear. If you've ever heard Canon, my wife, share her testimony She shares a time about when she was in college, she was working for a Christian organization, and she just started feeling that she was kind of felt almost flippant about salvation and sin. And so she prayed that God would give her a sense of her own sinfulness. And she said that next year was the hardest year of her life. It's not that she knows all of her sinfulness, but as she started to taste it, it broke her heart. I think that's what God means when he says, blessed are those who mourn. The the 
other part of her testimony is she said that it was in that time that she also learned to love communion. That there would be Saturdays where she thought, I don't deserve to go to church tomorrow. And she would show up to church and see the blood and the bread, or the blood and the body, the the juice and and the bread in front of us. And she would say, that was shed for me. And that's how she was comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, because they'll be comforted. The next one is, blessed are those who are meek. This is meekness. At its root, I believe that meekness is the lack of self-importance. We're meek when we don't think that we deserve a place at the table. Right? When I don't think, I'm meek when I don't think, why didn't you notice me? Why didn't you let me in here? Especially spiritually speaking. I am meek before God when I don't think he owes me anything. I think Paul's kind of describing this, especially as we interact, how we interact with other people in Philippians 2. He says, don't think about yourselves more highly than you ought. But in humility, count everybody as more important than yourself. That's meekness. And it's clear why meekness flows out of poorness of spirit, right? I'm meek because I realize who I am. I am not important. I have no righteousness to offer God. I don't deserve. It's not simply that I have foregone my right at the table. I don't deserve a place at the table at all. Meekness really is just understanding how little we actually deserve. That's what meekness is. And so we come to our last of the, of the first set. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I think sometimes we misunderstand this verse, or I should say sometimes I've read it and misunderstood it. And so let me say, state something really obvious that I need to hear, even if you don't. Hunger happens when I lack food. It's really obvious, right? Hunger and is when I lack food. Thirst is when I lack water. So if I hunger and thirst for righteousness, I'm recognizing this is something I lack. This is something I don't have. I, have, I think we joke about it in my family. My brother-in-law, his name's Andrew. My sister married, and he's from this Super, super nice family that always has a way of talking around the bad things about you and trying to make it sound nice. And so one of the ways he does that is he never would say that someone's fat. He would say they're, they're a hungry person, right? And so he married into a hungry family. And uh, the problem with that, at least in this context, is the, the fact that we are fat proves that we're not the kind of hungry that Christ is talking about, right? It proves that I've never actually lacked food in my life. I was in seminary, on a side note. I come home to visit my family. My dad says, well, looks like you're not missing any meals. <laughs> dad, that's rude. But it was the proof that I'm not, I don't have any lack of food. That's not the hunger that he's talking about. The hunger for righteousness is like a hungry person 
who is starving to death. You completely lack food, and it is killing you. A person who hungers and thirsts after righteousness is somebody who realizes, I have no righteousness, and it's killing me. It is literally my death sentence that I have no righteousness of my own. So what type of person inherits the kingdom of heaven? It's a person who knows I don't deserve the kingdom of heaven. I don't deserve it. My spirit is poor. I'm in spiritual poverty. I have nothing to offer. I'm broken and sad and distraught that I am a wretched person. We sing Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, that saved a wretch like me. But do we really think I am a wretched person? I'm meek. I'm not meek because I have this great virtue about me. I'm meek because I realize I have no virtue at all. I can't tell you what I deserve because I don't deserve a thing. I just simply recognize what's true about me. And that is why it leads me to the fourth beatitude that I'm hungering and thirsting after righteousness. We're getting ready to look at the next four beatitudes. And the first four just said that the person who gets in the kingdom is the person who knows he doesn't get there. And then I told you that the next four are going to be displays of righteousness, displays of right living. And so what's the hang-up? Why did these two contradictory ideas work together? And it's because of what happens in the second half of verse 4. Blessed are those who hunger. I say verse 4. I meant beatitude 4. I think it's verse 6. I'll probably make that mistake several times. Beatitudes start two verses into chapter 5. So if I say verse and I mean beatitude, just be merciful. It's the next virtue. Um. I hunger and thirst for righteousness, I realize I don't have it. The reason in the next few Beatitudes I will have it is because of what happens in Beatitude 4. They will be filled. What does it mean, they will be filled? It means that you will be given the righteousness of Christ. If you think about it, Christ is the only person who has never hungered or thirsted after righteousness. He has never had a lack of righteousness ever. And it's from his abundance that he fills you and me. And the person who lacks righteousness can be filled with Christ's righteousness and therefore made righteous. So on a big, big picture of what's going on, he's saying everyone who gets into the kingdom has to know that they don't deserve to be there. And everyone who gets into the kingdom has to be a person who's transformed by the righteousness of Christ. Paul would have said it, anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. So the people who get into the kingdom are people who have been filled with Christ's righteousness. They've been made new. Well, let's look at what it looks like to be made righteous. Let's read it. We'll read the next four Beatitudes. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. 
And blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So let's walk through these four pictures of a person who's a part of the kingdom of God. And we'll start with a merciful person. A merciful person is simply somebody who loves the unlovable and forgives the unforgivable. Right? If you are a merciful person, you are a person who is fulfilling the second greatest commandment, to love others as you love yourself. Right? A merciful person is someone who loves others. Why is it that we would show mercy? It's because mercy has been shown to us. Jesus talks a lot, actually, about the idea of mercy being shown to us as both, uh, or our forgiveness, our willingness to show mercy, is both motivated by the mercy that has been given to us, and it's proof of the mercy we expect to one day receive at the judgment. Right? That's what happens, if you remember in Luke chapter 7, Jesus talks to the woman who, uh, or he's talking to Peter about the, this prostitute who had broken her vial. We actually talked about her today. She broke, or sang about her. She broke her perfume vial and washed his feet. And the Pharisee says, why in the world would Jesus hang out with a woman like this? And so Jesus calls Peter aside and he says, Peter, do you understand what she's doing? He says, this woman, she was a prostitute. But because she has been forgiven much, she loves much. It's the person who has been forgiven little who loves little. And then he looked at her and he said, woman, your sins are forgiven. And the point is that if a person has been forgiven by God, they will be merciful. If you've been filled with Christ's righteousness, if you've been forgiven, you will forgive. If you have been loved, you will love. And it's that love that is the proof that in the last day when God's righteous judgment is revealed, he'll say, I know that you were forgiven. I know that you tasted my mercy because you reflected my mercy to the people who are around you. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. When you think of purity in heart, what do you think of? What comes to mind? One of the best definitions I've heard actually came from Trey Connor. You know Trey Connor? He's a little guy, and he was in our uh, youth group. We were talking on a Sunday morning. I think Jeffrey Cox asked him, what does purity of heart mean? What is purity? And, Jeff- and um, Trey, I'm sorry, Trey said, purity is when you're not mixed with anything else. That's right. That's what purity is. There's a philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard. He defined it the same way with different language. He says, purity of heart is to will one thing. I am pure of heart when there's one thing that is supremely valuable in my life. Purity of heart is, I don't love God and a bunch of other things. God is my great love. If you were here a couple weeks ago, that's what Jonathan spoke about in Philippians 3. He did a great job. Let me read to you that passage. Paul said, Everything that was a gain to me, 
I've considered to be a loss because of the surpassing knowledge of Christ, or because of Christ. He says, more than that, I consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I suffer the loss of all things and consider them filth so that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. Paul says, my goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, assuming that somehow I will reach the resurrection from among the dead. Paul says, everything in the world that I could have possibly lost gained for me if I just get Christ. If I could just know Jesus, nothing else would be remotely nearly, even similarly valuable. He's that awesome. That's purity of heart. When Christ is so valuable that everything else seems worthless in comparison. You may have already picked up on it. The first commandment, or the, the first beatitude was blessed are the merciful. And that was kind of an outworking of what it meant to love your neighbor as yourself. Blessed are the pure in heart is an outworking of what it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And if that's you, then you'll see God. The person who wants God more than anything else in the world, the great promise of this beatitude is he gets them. You want, you want the, the most supreme treasure in all the world? then you get them. If that's what you want the most, then that's what you get. What a promise. What a promise. Watching the next one, the peacemakers. And so what we've seen is if you've been filled with Christ's righteousness, you're going to love others. And if you've been filled with Christ's righteousness, you're going to love God. And now, if you've been filled with Christ's righteousness... You're going to help others love God. I think that's what it means to be a peacemaker. Now, of course, being a peacemaker can mean any time that two people are in a fight, I can help resolve that. But I think Paul's doing a little bit more. I'm sorry, Jesus is saying more. I think he's continuing this theme of growing this. You love God, you love others, and you bring those guys together. Let me try to explain. Paul explains it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 better than I can. So let me read Paul. From now on, then, we do not know anyone in a purely human way. Even if we have known Christ in a purely human way, yet now no longer do we know him that way. Which, by the way, when Paul wrote this letter, there were people who knew Jesus because they had gone out to lunch with him or fish with him, right? He's like, you might have known Jesus as a pure human, but not now. There's something bigger and better about how you know him. Why? Because anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away, and look, new things have come. Everything is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And then listen, he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling, which is just a fancy word for making peace. God was making peace. Uh, between the world and himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. 
He has committed the job of peacemaking to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Certain that God is appealing through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. I think that's what a peacemaker is. A peacemaker is someone who has been given the ministry of reconciliation and you plead to a lost and dying world who is at war with God and say, be at peace. Be at peace with God. Be reconciled to him. And if you're a peacemaker, you'll be called a son of God. There's one last beatitude. One of the most shocking of this irony uh, displays is that blessed is the one who is persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 11 and 12 expand on this idea. They're kind of a uh, commentary on the last beatitude. And they just say, look, it's exciting to be persecuted because that's what happens to true followers. Look at all the prophets. That's what happened to them when they were, they were persecuted because they were following God. And if you're persecuted, that's just proof that you're following God. If you suffer for righteousness' sake, that's good. That's a good thing because it's proof that you're following God. On one hand, I think this should give us some pause. Not even pause. We should just turn the channel when we hear a preacher say, no suffering if you follow Christ. Right? That's not, that's not a good thing. A good thing is when I suffer for righteousness' sake because then I know the kingdom of heaven is mine. As if I would rather never suffer and not have the kingdom? I don't know. I want to ask us to think through a little bit, though. What would it look like to suffer for righteousness' sake? Especially here in Baker County, how in the world might you be persecuted for righteousness' sake? What did righteousness, what did righteousness look like? When the first person was merciful, how might you show mercy to somebody in a way that that would return persecution on you? That might mean giving mercifully to somebody who, in all likelihood, will simply take advantage of your mercy. Showing kindness to somebody who, in all likelihood, will only spurn your kindness, or even worse, make you suffer more from it. Right? And we're going to look in a couple weeks. Somebody might ask you for uh, uh, your shirt, and you give them your coat too, or they'll ask for your coat, and you'll give them your shirt too. They might slap you on one cheek, and you might have to turn on the other cheek. Being kind to people might leave you in a position to be mistreated. Are you willing to suffer for righteousness' sake? What about pureness of heart? If you seek God as your supreme treasure, how might you be persecuted for that? What promotions 
or friendships at work or at school might you have to give up because you're not willing to pursue the things that are not of God? How might you have to suffer because knowing Christ is more important to you than the deeds that are against Christ, the things that he had to die for? Let's be honest. There's a lot of people in this world who will find your commitment to righteousness as a roadblock to their progress. Would you be willing to suffer and even be persecuted to be righteous? Maybe even to lose your promotion and maybe even to lose your job because following Christ is worth it. What about being a peacemaker? In Baker County, if you found someone who was estranged from God, they don't know God, and you gave up your time and your money and your energy to spread the message of Christ's work so that he can make peace between them and God, what might happen? What if you did it at school? There's a good chance that you'll be mocked. You're a simpleton. You really believe that stuff? You're not as smart as the other people. I heard a guy say not long ago, the only people who would rely on Christianity are people who need a crutch, right? Because they're not strong enough on their own, to which we should say, yeah, that's the whole point of the first four Beatitudes, (laughs) right? Of course I need a crutch. I have nothing good of my own. But it's still this sense of, oh, you're not as good as me, and we hate to not be as good as people. Are you willing to be seen as a lesser person in your efforts to help people make peace with God. We're getting ready to conclude, and I want to ask us to take a serious pause to think about how we're going to respond to this. And if the music team wants to head up, you, you can. But let me, um, let me ask two things of you. Two, two big takeaways that I'd like for you to consider. The first one is, have you humbled yourself and said to God, I'm not worthy? In your heart, have you said, there is nothing good in me that deserves the kingdom of God? You have to take that step to enter the kingdom of heaven. It only comes through humiliating ourselves, recognizing that we're of no value, and trusting that Christ is of perfect value. So my first question for you is, have you humbled yourself, and are you willing to do it tonight? If you haven't, will you come tonight and say, I'm poor of spirit. I'm in, I'm in spiritual poverty, and I need God. My second question, I'd like to ask you to think of a specific way that you can apply the second half of the Beatitudes. I think one of the risks we often run is we think in big generalities. Man, I want to be a person who is merciful and pure heart, and I want to be a peacemaker. And we never put rubber on the road and do it. What would it look like, not just for Christians to be merciful, but for you, where you are? How can you specifically this week 
Maybe tonight, maybe this month, how can you specifically take steps to reflect Christ and what he's done for us by being merciful and forgiving, people who don't deserve it, by pursuing God above all other things, or perhaps by making peace, by inviting people to church, proclaiming the gospel to them, having conversations that will cost you your time and your money and your energy. How can you specifically say, God, I'm going to take your word seriously and apply it to my life? As they play and we move into our time of response, will you ask God to show you clearly how you can respond? Let me pray. Dear Lord, we want the kingdom of heaven. And we want the kingdom of heaven because we know that's where you are. We want to know you. And we want to be like you. So we ask you, just like Canon asked, we ask that you give us a glimpse of our own depravity, of our own weakness, of our own depravity, our own spiritual poverty. We also ask that you fill us with your own righteousness and make us look like you, people who are forgiving and kind, people who pursue you wholeheartedly, and people who offer to the world an opportunity to be reconciled with you. Change us from the inside out. In your name I pray. Amen.